Today's video was recorded on January 11th, 2022. Today's lesson is the first in a series that'll take us through the book of Exodus. So the book of Exodus is foundational for understanding the rest of the Bible, and in particular, the actions of Jesus, the Gospels, and the overall message of the New Testament. In today's video, we take a bird's eye view of the entire book, and what we'll see is a message of redemption and of the presence of God that emerges from the text. Now, our overall goal here at Fig Tree Ministries is to make reading the Bible more enjoyable for you. And we do this by helping you understand the cultural, the literary, and the historical context within which the Bible was written. It's our conviction that the more people read their Bible, the more the potential that lies within God's words is released out into the world. And it's through this unleashing of God's power that brings glory to God and fulfills His will here on earth. Now make sure you don't miss any of our lessons on this study of Exodus. And you can do that by subscribing to our YouTube channel by clicking that red subscribe button below. Or if you prefer to listen on podcasts, follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So we hope you enjoy today's introduction to the book of Exodus. Okay, so this is going to be our introduction to Exodus. And as I mentioned, we will just work our way through some of these, these stories to try to see what the book is telling us and then how we can relate that to, one, our own individual spiritual walk. You'll see tonight, how do we create a space for the Holy Spirit to dwell within us? That's one message from Exodus that, uh, is, again, is often skipped over because it's, it's in 15 tedious chapters on, on building a tabernacle. But very important, how do we create a space, not only as individuals, how do we create a space as a community that the presence of God can dwell, and then that goes out into the world and it changes the world around us. Um, so we'll, God willing, we'll, we'll see that tonight. So there are messages in Exodus that no doubt can affect us even today. Another aspect of Exodus we'll find over the next couple of weeks is Exodus reflects a spiritual journey. So you, if you think about your own spiritual journey and then look how Exodus flows, you can see that the way God has this story flowing out reflects our, our own humanity and the way that our spiritual journey goes. So there's just some really cool stuff in the book of Exodus, and we'll just walk through some of those stories. And, you know, my main goal is I, through all of these videos is to help someone be more excited. I had a couple people as they watched the stuff on, on Judges say, you know, I never read Judges before, but now that I've watched those videos and understand something about Judges, I went and read it. And it's like, that's what I want. Because, you know, when the Bible is unread, it's only potential. It's when you read it and it goes into you that it becomes, the potential is released out into the world. And so part of my mission is to help people be more excited about reading the Bible because there's something about it that you understand foundationally that makes it more enjoyable. Nobody likes to read anything you don't understand. Okay, so this is introduction. Background picture. This is um, Edward Pointer. This was painted in 1867. The name of the painting, Israel in Egypt. And of course, it's depicting the slave-driving nature of the Pharaoh, of the, of the Israelites in Egypt. They were slaves. And all of us are encouraged to say, how are we a slave? Right? There's a 
totalitarian dictator somewhere, either external to us or maybe it's our own sin nature, that keeps us in slavery? And how can we be delivered out of slavery? Okay, as we start this, I just, I started out with a little bit of data. It's just data. For those that are interested in data, this might interest you. For everyone else, well, we'll see. I want to find out, how did we get to the name Exodus? How do we get to that, that name of the book? That's what I'm really driving at. But I want to start out by talking about the Hebrew name for the book of Exodus and show you how, if you talk to one of your Jewish friends or you go to a synagogue, um, they name their books differently than we do. And I'll show you how they do that. So if we just look at the Hebrew, you go to a, a Jewish synagogue and you say the book of Exodus, they know what you're talking about. But if you wanted to say it in Hebrew, you would call it Shemot. You would say, turn to Shemot. They know exactly what you're talking about. They open up the book of Exodus. Now, why? Well, that word Shemot means the names. It's names, plural. And in the ancient world, they would name a, a scroll or name a book by one of the very first words in the scroll or on the scroll. So, for instance, Genesis, if you go to a Hebrew synagogue, is Bereshit, which that word Bereshit, in the beginning. Well, what's the opening sentence of, of Genesis? In the beginning. So they don't call it Genesis, they call it Bereshit, which is just the opening words. So if you have your Bible and you turn to Exodus 1.1, the very first sentence of Exodus, we see, now if it was in Hebrew, it's the second word. These is the, are the first ones, and then the names of. So the Exodus 1.1 starts like this. These are the names of the sons of Israel. And this word right there for the names is Shemot. That's how you know where to go or which scroll to pick up. You look at the first word of the scroll. So again, it's just data to show you how our Jewish brothers and sisters talk about these books when it's in their original language. Okay, so Leviticus is not called Leviticus in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, the very first words of Leviticus is, and he called, which is Vaikra. So they call it Vaikra, and he called, and he called to Moses. Um, the book of Numbers is called Bamidbar, which means in the desert, because if you read the first sentence of the book of uh, Numbers, you find the word in the desert. So anyways, that's how they come up with uh, their book names, and that was something in the ancient world um, that was very common. Okay, but prior to Jesus, there was another name that they would call it. They would call the book of, or what we call the Exodus, or they call Shemot, they called it the book of the departure from Egypt. And there's a Hebrew phrase for that. We don't need to know that. If we focus on that word departure, so the book of the departure of Egypt, which is describing what the book is talking about, well, eventually, as they go to translate that 250 years before Jesus is born into Greek, how do you say the word departure in Greek? And that, of course, is Exodus. 
So if you read, uh, it's only in the book of Luke, but if you read the transfiguration story in the book of Luke, Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about his exodus, his departure. So that word is in our, that Greek word is found in the New Testament at the transfiguration. So this is how we get, this is how we get to our modern idea of the word, or modern calling it exodus because it comes from a Hebrew phrase, the book of the departure. When they translate that to Greek, you get Exodus. So anyways, like I said, it's just some data to show you where do we get that name, and why is it different if you ever hear about it in Hebrew, because they use a slightly different way to name their books. So that's the book of Exodus, and it's exactly that. It's the part departure from Egypt, but as we'll see, there's so much more than just departing from Egypt. Okay. So one of the questions, this is number two on your handout, one of the questions that we're going to talk about is, what is the book of Exodus about? Now, besides the departure from Egypt, the book of Exodus is about the idea of redemption. And we see in the book that God is going to redeem Israel out of their circumstances, they're enslaved, he redeems them out of their circumstances, and back into their proper relationship with God. So it's a book of redemption. It's showing you a picture of God's redemption. And we'll see even later um, in a couple of weeks when there are four promises made, and one of those promises is to redeem you. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, God says. So it's a book of redemption. Now, one thing, um, it's very important to understand that the idea of redemption does not come from the Bible. It's in the Bible. That's what the Bible's about. It doesn't, but it doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from the culture, the culture around it. So we remember that God speaks through the Bible writers and he communicates to a culture, and so when he tells a story about redemption, the culture understands what God is saying, because God always speaks to the culture. And so I want to show you very quickly, because you'll as soon as you see hear this, you'll say, "Oh, that's all over the Bible." Um, what's the ancient cultural idea of redemption? Not our modern thinking about it. What did the ancient world think about redemption, and why did God? Well, God's going to redeem the world, but the Bible writers show you redemption because that's actually what's happening with God. So, okay, I'm going to give you a quick example, and this is not on your sheet. Um, it's mostly pictures here, but you'll get the point. This photo, I took this photo um, in southern Iraq. So, mm, I don't know how many miles south of Baghdad, but... Um, I mean, right on the cusp of where the Euphrates is and it meets the desert. And these people uh, are still living very traditional lives. Uh, They did all their threshing, all their threshing by hand of the wheat. Um, it's, It's very traditional lives. It's remarkable. Now, what you're looking at right there, it looks like about, you know, four or five, maybe six buildings is actually a family compound. And what you would call it is the father's house, 
because it's a patriarchal society. The father's house is the central place where you gain all of your protection. If you go outside the father's house, you're not protected. And so this picture right here is representative. All of the kids grow up around him. So they're all family. They all live right around each other. And, they, and it becomes the center of the society is the father's house. Okay, so if you take this idea, the father's house, you have the patriarch of the family, and he becomes the lawgiver. He becomes the central place where all of the business is done. He's the most important person. The second most important person is who? Who's the next in line to the father in a patriarchal society? The firstborn son. Now, you can already see, you know, echoes of what's going on in the Bible here, right? The father has a firstborn son, and that firstborn son is everything to that household. And then around the father and the firstborn son, you get the, entire, the entirety of the household grows up. So you have all these families. Okay. What happens if one of those families gets caught outside the father's house, meaning outside the father's protection? Now, maybe they did it themselves. They sinned, and now you're outside of God's house. Or you have a strong enemy, like the Pharaoh enslaved the people. A strong enemy takes you away outside the father's house, so you're no longer under the father's protection. Well, what is the father going to do? He's going to set forth a rescue plan to go get you and bring you home. And that's redemption. I'm going, to, I'm going to redeem you back into the father's house. So it would either be the father or the son. So the father would send the son, the, the firstborn son, as his representative. He goes out to grab that person who's outside of the father's house, and he brings them back in and he restores them to the place that they were intended to, to be. That is what the Bible is about, right? The Bible presents the entire cosmos as God's house. And it fell. It fell away. So what does God do? He sends his son to redeem us, to bring creation. It's not just human beings. It's creation itself, to redeem creation itself. And you can even hear the words of Jesus you know, he's using this metaphor when Jesus says to his disciples, there are many rooms in my father's house, and I'm going to go prepare a place for you, and I'm going to bring you in back into my father's house. And so that's redemption. That's the cultural idea of redemption. Somebody's outside the father's house. I'm going to bring you back in the father's house. And that's what's happening in Exodus. So when we talk about Exodus as redemption, that's the cultural idea that Israel finds themselves outside the father's house. Now, did they do anything wrong? No. They were living their lives, being productive. It's not even their fault. The Pharaoh, who didn't know Joseph, starts to become afraid of the people and begins to oppress them. So the, a strong enemy takes them away. And now God, the Father, is going to step in and, through his actions, redeem them out of the hands of the strong enemy, the Pharaoh. And then the rest of the book, as it goes, he brings them out to Mount Sinai and eventually in 
restoring them back into that proper relationship. So the book of Exodus is this vivid picture. It's concrete action that shows God's redemptive power and his plan concretely, not just in an abstraction, concretely. So I think you'll see as we move through the study, there are many parallels, even with our modern relationships with God, right? Uh, you know, there was a, a totalitarian dictator, of a type of pharaoh that was called my own sin, that was keeping me outside the Father's house. And when I eventually had to give in, you know, and fight the battles of your own sinful nature, God says, I want you to come home. And he brings you home into, into his household. So we'll see that over and over again, how it reflects our, even our own humanity. And God, of course, is still in the redemption business today. And by the way, business is booming. So it's still going on. Okay. Now, uh, I'm still on point number two, but the Bible in its entirety, because I want you guys to see this, the Bible in its entirety, from Genesis to Revelation, is a, it's a story of redemption. We want to look at the symbolism, though, and say, how, how, does, how does the Bible show us that? Because when we get to Exodus, we're going to see the same thing, okay? So it's really the foundational message that God says, I'm going to redeem the world. And so the Bible begins, where at? Where does the Bible begin? In a garden. Now, it's, a, it's an enclosed uh, paradise. The word paradise is a Persian borrow word. It means uh, an enclosed garden. It's a protected place, a protected space. So the Bible begins in a garden. And what you have is God's presence. You have the presence of God. You have God's people, in that case, Adam and Eve. And you have a sacred space, Eden. God's presence, God's people, God's place. And all of them are living in harmony. Until our ancestors made a mistake, sinned, and the whole thing falls apart, right? And now God goes into a rescue plan to redeem the world. Eventually, he's going to send his son out to redeem humanity. And how does the Bible end? Well, it's the same way. We get to Revelation 21, and what do we find? The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. It's God's presence, and it's God's people, and they're all living inside a sacred space. Now, we would call that sacred space heaven, the new Jerusalem, but it's, it's the idea that everyone is back in uh, restored back in harmony with God. So from the beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, we have bookends of how this thing's going to end. And that's important for us to see. Um, we, we don't have time to turn there, but I just want to read out loud to you Revelation 21.3, because this is getting... the whole. If you read Revelation 21 and 22, you obviously see the, you see the garden. The tree of life is there. The river is flowing from the, the, the temple of God. Revelation 21 starts like this. So Revelation 21.3, John is recalling what he's seeing up in the heavens. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them. That's redemption. We're back. Everybody's back in the father's house. They will be his people, and God himself 
will be with them and be their God. So we started uh, this Bible in the garden, God's presence, God's people, God's space. We end the Bible in the same garden, New Jerusalem, God's presence, God's people, God's space. And that's the biblical story of redemption, that God's going to restore everything back to order. Okay, so I wanted to show you that, that, that if you look at the Bible itself, that's how the Bible is bracketed as the story of redemption. Uh, so if you want to know how this thing's going to end one day, go read Revelation 21 and 22, and you'll be happy to know that you're going to be uh, back restored with God. Now, Let's go then to Exodus, because Exodus is going to have some similarities to that. A little bit different the way that it starts, but the ending is going to be the same. So if we look at the book of Exodus as a story of redemption, now it's not the final cosmic redemption, uh, but it's redemption like we have right now. God redeems us out of our sinful nature, and then he wants us to dwell in his presence right now which is what we try to do, or at least we're supposed to. So we're not fully redeemed, but we're redeemed in, in the present. So in the book of Exodus, one of the major themes that you could look at is simply the presence of God. Because when you start the book of Exodus, chapter 1 and chapter 2, God's presence is minimal. It's like he's in the background. You don't see God working, and you don't see the people worshiping God like they will. So God's presence is muted in the beginning. Of course, the, his people are enslaved, so they're not free. They're not redeemed yet, and there's no sacred space. That's how Exodus begins. Then the plan of redemption comes in, in the book of Exodus. And what I'd like you to do is turn to Exodus chapter 40, if you want to look in your Bible, because it's something happens. We know the story of the burning bush. We know Pharaoh. We know the Red Sea crossing. We, get, we hit the Ten Commandments right about chapter 20, and then it's like, boof, we're off. We forget the rest of the book, right? We go off and read something else, because the latter half of the book is all about the tabernacle. But we need to look at what is the ending of the story. This is the most important part. Because when we get to the end, they've created a space for God. Called the, we call it the tabernacle. But you create a space for God. And what happens when you create a space for God? He fills it. His presence shows up. He can't wait. He's so happy you created a space for him. Thank you. How easy is it for us to clutter our lives and not create a space for God? So what happens at the end of Exodus? God's presence shows up, dwelling right in the midst of his people. It's just like what's, what Revelation is saying. So you have God's presence, you have God's people, Israel, and they've created a sacred space. In this case, the tabernacle. But just like how the story is going to end, redemption, like in the Bible, it's happening now. And so what I want you to look at is Exodus 40, and look at verse 34 and 35. It's so cool, because you'll see almost the same exact thing happening in a minute with Solomon's temple. It's so amazing. 
how God acts when you create a space for him. So, okay. I, I, oh, I, I see what I did. I put up verse 33. So if you just move your eyes up one sentence there. Now, they've gone through, uh, we'll talk about it in a minute, a whole bunch of chapters on how to build that tabernacle. And there's so many cool lessons that come out of it for us, for us today, that we can use. So Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle. He put up the curtain at the entrance. And then it says, and so Moses finished his work. Now that's key, because we're going to see that again with Solomon. Moses finished his work. And what happens the moment that Moses finishes his work? Verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So there's God filling that sacred space the moment you have the sacred space. Then, verse 35, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And that's how Exodus ends. That's the whole point. How do you create a space for the presence of God to dwell? God wants a, he wants a community of people. Yes, it's important for individuals to have the, the Holy Spirit, but we live in communities and we want the community to have a Holy Spirit where the presence of God dwells powerfully. You know, it's, if, you, if you as a Christian remove yourself from the Christian community, you're not powerful any longer. You, you start to waver. You need the community of people. And that's where the, the Spirit of God is so, so much more powerful in a community. That's what Exodus is. They're in community building a space for God. So you start in slavery, you end with the indwelling of the Spirit or God's presence. And of course, this is what we're all up to, right? In our own walk with God. Um, okay, so sacred space for God, because there's some really cool things in Exodus that I'll show you over, over time, but this is one of the key, um, the key ideas. You create a space, and the moment we do, God fills it, right? Now, the sacred space is not only physical space. That's the tabernacle. And so we have physical sacred spaces. That's our church building. Or when our community gathers into a, a building of whatever, the, the moment you get into that community, you're in a sacred space, physical space. But we also will notice in Exodus that there's an emphasis on sacred time. So it's not just space, geography, or a literal building, but it's sacred time. Have you carved out time in your life or your week or your day or whatever that God will fill it with his presence? And that is what a Sabbath is. And, you know, people can go from, uh, you know, having a Sabbath that's not rigid and legalistic, and you can move all the way out to, to the idea of having a Sabbath that is got tons of rules around it. And, you know, God doesn't demand those rules, but he wants you to create sacred time. And how important is it for us to rest at some point? Stop creating in the world. So there's physical space and there's sacred time. And that's both going to, those are going to be emphasized uh, here in the book of Exodus. Now, this is all introductions. So I'm just going to go through this real quick. We will cover it again down the, down the road, but I just want to show you how the authors are putting this together of in the book, or how God is weaving his text 
because there's a, um, it's the last 15 or maybe 16 chapters of the book are all about the tabernacle, creating space. So how important is that when over a third of your book is just to create space for God to dwell? So from Exodus 25 to 40, it's all about the tabernacle. And what's very cool is it's structured. I'll show you what it looks like in a minute in what's called a chiastic structure. Now, a chiastic structure or a chiasm, the Greek letter chi is an X. And so as the text is being written, it will actually take up a particular shape like the side of an X. And so they call it a chiastic structure. So I want to just show you real quick on the screen what that looks like. These are all over the Bible. One of my favorite ones is the Tower of Babel. Amazing chiastic structure in the Tower of Babel. Only nine verses, and it just blows your mind when you see uh, the structure of that text. So you have an X, right? That's the chi. So we have an X. Now take away one side of the X. So if I remove this line and I remove this line, I get something that kind of looks like an arrow or a greater than. And the text is going to be structured along that arrow. So one half, one half of a chiastic structure. So it starts at chapter 25, and then it ends at chapter 40. And what happens is chapter 25 will mirror chapter 40. Chapter, well, 26 or 27 will mirror 39. You start to mirror itself. It goes to a climax. So, for instance, in chapter 25, the presence of God is at the top of the mountain. The clouds came down on Mount Sinai, and there were thunder and fire and darkness. And Moses goes into the darkness to meet God's presence up at the top of the mountain. Well, in chapter 40, what did we just read? The very last thing. We have God's presence again, but this time the presence is now indwelt, very close to the people, right in the midst of the people, not on top of the mountain where they're all afraid of it. It's down right inside the people dwelling. And that's kind of our experience with God. At first, when you're first saved, God is this awe. It's like you're bigger than anything. And then eventually over time, God becomes indwelt in your heart in a way that's very personal. So, okay, so you have God's presence, you have God's presence. It goes to a turning point, and the turning point is the golden calf. From 25 to the golden calf are the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, but it fails. You get the golden calf. Then from the golden calf all the way down to God's presence is a reiteration of the tabernacle instructions. That's why most people give up halfway. And so what we find, though, that's very important to notice is that bracketing the golden calf is two commandments to keep the Sabbath. How do you avoid the golden calf? Make sure you keep that Sabbath. You set apart not just a sacred space, but sacred time for God. Because when you start cluttering your life and God gets pushed aside, you'll worship anything else, a false God. So one way, you know, this is why Jews can't understand why Christians don't take a Sabbath seriously. And Christians look at Jews and say, why are you being so rigid about a Sabbath? And they're like, well, look what happened to us when we didn't, you know, keep our Sabbath. You end up in the golden calf situation. So 
This is what I mean by the, the structure. It's, it's really amazing to see, but you find, again, you find that um, it's physical space, the tabernacle, and then inside that, the commandments for the tabernacle, the Sabbath. Okay, that's just one example of some amazing stuff inside the book of Exodus. But I want to talk now. Okay. Um, let me see the time. Okay. As much as I can, I want to show you how we can take this right to the New Testament and how things that we start seeing in Exodus, we can resolve itself in the New Testament and they help us understand what's happening in the New Testament. And this one, talk about creating a space for God, right? is a really cool one for the church, if we can just have eyes to see. Okay, so with the very first example of creating the space for God is what we just did, the tabernacle. So by the time you get to Exodus 40, Moses finishes the work. He finishes the work, and the next thing you know, the glory of God is filling the tabernacle. So that's, that's how Exodus ends. And it gives us an amazing picture of that. Now, that was the tabernacle for God's house. What's God's next house? So they had the tabernacle for all those years. And then what comes next? Solomon's temple. So the next thing that happens is once David settles in Jerusalem, you put the deity's house right there where you're settling your people. And so Solomon builds a temple. Now, amazingly enough, what do you think happens when, when Solomon finishes the temple? Let's take a look, because it just blows your mind. If you have your Bible, turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and we're just going to look at verse 1 and 2, and this time I chose the ESV because it uses the more literal phrase, the house of the Lord. Some of the other ones say God's temple, but that's not what it says. It says the house of the Lord, and it's the word house. So Second Chronicles, Solomon builds his temple. Then he's going to dedicate the temple to God. And what happens the moment he dedicates the temple? Well, verse 7 says this, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, now remember Moses, as soon as Moses finished the work, as soon as Solomon finished the prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and sacrifice, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Amazing. Same thing happened. Now, verse 2, remember when the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, Moses couldn't enter the tabernacle. And look what verse 2 says. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Same exact thing happens as the tabernacle. So, in their mind, in, that, in their that, the Jewish mind, that temple that sat in Jerusalem, God's presence dwelt there. Now, they knew, also knew that God is everywhere, but he chose to localize his presence in one spot. And of course, that becomes the holiest of all sites. So what I want to do is I'm going to take you now. We've seen two examples where God's presence fills the space. And now I want to take you to Acts chapter 2 and the Pentecost event. 
How do we understand this event at Pentecost? And I want to suggest a good way to understand the Pentecost event is exactly what we're talking about with God's presence. And what happens with God's presence at Pentecost? Okay? So follow me here. We just saw the tabernacle, yes? And as soon as the tabernacle's built, God's presence moves in. Then we see the Solomon's temple. There's the presence of God as soon as he sees it built with fire coming down from heaven. God moves in and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So in Jesus' day, when he walked up to that temple mount, uh, Herod the Great built, and the temple that sat on top of it, they knew 100% that God's presence was dwelling in that temple. Why? Because they knew it from their history. Then Acts chapter 2 comes along. It's Pentecost. It's the the fourth holiday on, this, on the season, or the, the calendar of, of holidays. It's the holiday that celebrates the deliverance of, of the Torah from Mount, Mount Sinai. It's just like Exodus all over again. And then they see the fire, right? And it comes out. So the fire the, that represents the presence of God moves out of the temple. God's changing his address. And what's the new temple. Where does the fire land? On the believers. That's the new temple. The believers become the temple. No longer is God's presence uh, just simply in that, inside that temple. I mean, so when we see that the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, it's because God moved out. The presence of God leaves the temple and it lands on the believers, they become the new temple of God, which means now, where's the temple of God? It's right here. Wherever you find a community of faith that gets together, it basically takes the, uh, the concreteness and it abstracts it so that the whole world can enjoy God's presence. You don't have to fly to Jerusalem just to see God's temple. Worship wherever you're at and you become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now, can we confirm this? What did, what did the disciples and Paul think about this? Well, yes, we can. So the first one is 1 Peter. So if you, have your, if you want to turn in your Bible, 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. You guys probably know this by heart. Peter says this, As you come to him, the living stone, directed, uh, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also are living stones being built into what? A spiritual house. The you is what? Singular or plural? You're a living stone, but you're now being built into a uh, spiritual house. So you need other stones around you, right? So you're a living stone and you're being built into a spiritual house. To do what? Well, that's the place you become to serve God. How are people going to come meet God? They come to your community is where they go, to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter sees us, you're a stone, you're a stone, you're a stone, you're a stone. We all come together and we form a spiritual house. 
That's the power of community. And then the moment we, we, have, we form that spiritual house, God's presence. Okay, last one, and we'll finish on this. This one's, this one's the best, I think, the one that people like the best. This is Paul, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Again, I'm going to use the ESV because uh, the NIV updated and they made some changes. Paul says this in uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and the Spirit dwells in you? Now, we live in an individualistic society. And so when you read that, do you not know you are God's temple and the Spirit dwells in you? We think individual. Ah, I am the temple. Now, God does say your body's a temple, but, or I'm sorry, Paul does say your body's a temple. But that's not what this sentence says. There's a little footnote. Do you not know that you, and it's footnoted. And what's the footnote say? The Greek is plural. So what Paul is saying here is, don't you know that all y'all, don't you know that all y'all are God's temple? You, plural, and the Spirit dwells in you, plural? Yes, so it's the community of faith that becomes the space for God's uh, presence to dwell. It's so important that we, know, that we recognize that. And the NIV changed it. Don't you know that you yourselves, they put it in the plural because too many people were reading it as you singular individual. No, 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 Paul says, you all gather together and God's spirit will dwell among you. Okay, so creating a space for God. This is one of my uh, just favorite, um, when we get to the book of Exodus, the presence of God in creating that space, it often gets missed. And I think it's a very important piece. And you can see how you can directly connect Exodus all the way up to uh, the New Testament, because they're all reading the same documents saying, this is what we need to do. We need to become that temple for God, of God's spirit. Okay, so in review, let's just do a quick review. The Bible is a story of redemption. Exodus is a picture, it's concrete redemption. How do we know how God acts? We read Exodus, and that shows us how God acts. So you have redemption. The Bible's about redemption. Exodus is about re redemption. More importantly, we're going to talk about creating that space for God, and then that space for us is our faith community. That's where the temple is today. That's where the presence of God, and you can feel it on a Sunday morning when in worship, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the hair on your arms stand up, and you feel the presence of God. Yeah, you don't get that when you're walking down the aisle in Walmart, but, you know, when you have a community of believers coming together, now you get the Spirit of God moving. All right, hopefully that helps. That's totally introduction um, to at least give you like an idea of the flow of the book, because that just helps us when we, as we read, we can, we'll see where we're going in the book, that it's, we're on a journey, and we don't want to stop that journey and forget about the last part. So, okay, so that's our introduction to Exodus. We hope you enjoyed today's introductory lesson on the book of Exodus. For more teachings or resources to help you study your Bible, you can visit our website at figtreeteaching.com. And as you go out today, may you be blessed by the words from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you 
and give you shalom.